Well, good morning, Hallows Church. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the Scriptures this morning. So if you have your Bibles, no matter where you are located in our city, uh, grab those, turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 2, to the passage our friend James read for us a moment ago. This beautiful passage that takes the form of an ancient hymn. And as you're finding your way to 1 Samuel chapter 2, I'm going to voice one more prayer for us, and then we will dive right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Would you bless the preaching of it this morning? God, let your word create faith within us. Let your word strengthen faith. Let your word build faith. Let your word accomplish the purpose for which you are sending it out today. God, we love you and we trust you and we are praying all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on November 14th, 2010, my wife and I uh, welcomed our firstborn into the world, Delaney Elizabeth. Now, Delaney uh, carries her mom's maiden name, which is Delaney, and her mom's middle name, which is Elizabeth. And as we held her in the hospital room on that day, we thanked and praised God for the blessing he bestowed upon us. But as great as that moment was, uh, our prayers did not include thoughts of the bows of the warriors being broken. And we did not give shout-outs to how the Lord is going to judge the earth in the end. As wonderful as that moment was, eschatology was not on our minds as we rejoiced in that hospital room. So it's a bit surprising to find such themes on Hannah's mind not long after giving birth to her, her child, Samuel. And so the question becomes, why is that? Why would she in this moment, pray such a sweeping prayer. I mean, her prayer extends far beyond what she's just experienced on the personal front. Her prayer includes thoughts on how the Lord is going to judge the ends of the earth. He, her prayer concerns how the Lord will govern the world. It even ends on a prophetic note where she declares that one day God's king is coming. One day he will arrive. So her prayer seems a bit much. given uh, She's just given birth to a child. You think her prayer might not include such broad, sweeping themes. And so, again, the question is, why is that? Now, the answer must be that her story must, that there must be a lot more going on in her story than we realize and if you recall from last week, when we stepped into this study of 1 Samuel, we, we said that 1 Samuel presents Hannah's story as a scale model of Israel's story. And as a scale model of Israel's story, it, it becomes, in a sense, humanity's story. That her barrenness represented Israel's barrenness. And such barrenness is an indication of humanity's barrenness. For we know from experience that we have all sinned and fallen short of the grace and the glory by which and for which we have been created. And being spiritually barren, we do not have the resources within us to overcome all the things that ail us in a fallen world. All we can do when we come to acknowledge that reality, all we can do is join Hannah in bringing our barrenness before the Lord and crying out to him for mercy. 
Now the events of this past week, perhaps that reality is more apparent now than ever, given what went down in D.C. Now, you consider the story. Hannah could not give birth to a child. Israel could not establish herself as a nation on the earth. And you and I cannot overcome life in a fallen world. Just as Hannah was ridiculed by Panina and Israel would be harassed by the Philistines, you and I are constantly assailed by sin and Satan and death. And to borrow Hannah's words from verse 9, we cannot prevail by our own strength. No, we need the strength of another. We need the God who saves like no other. And this is the God who Hannah prays to in chapter 2. This is the one her heart is rejoicing in when she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. What a remarkable change from last week as we're finding joy replacing sorrow in her heart. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 8, we, we saw that Hannah was deeply hurt and she prayed to the Lord and wept many tears. But here in chapter 2, something has changed. She may still have tears in her eyes. But her tears are not the tears of sorrow. They are now the tears of joy for God has met her in the midst of her mess and shown her mercy. And so she's rejoicing in this moment. She's praising God in this prayer. Now there's a story in the Gospel of Luke where we find ten lepers, ten people who are desperately in need of mercy. They They come to Jesus and they cry out for that. Listen to what goes down. They cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he told them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at Jesus' feet, thanking him. And it was a Samaritan This is Luke's way of saying this was an outsider that no one expected to receive mercy and no one expected to respond to the Messiah in the ways that he's doing. And then Jesus said, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. Well, just as that leper had received mercy and responded by giving glory to God, by falling at the fate of Jesus and worshiping him, so Hannah does here. She's giving God glory in response to the mercy he's shown her. For the Lord has brought blessing out of her barren state. Now, when it comes to the mercy of God, understand that God's mercy is deeply personal. It is deeply personal. If you notice in verse 1, four times, Hannah uses the word my. She says, my heart, my horn, my mouth, my enemies. She's responding personally because God's mercy met her in a deeply personal situation. Hannah for so long had been without a child and for so long, she was taunted by Panina. She was harassed by her, by this other woman who had many kids. Perhaps Panina made fun of her name, saying, Hannah, your name means favored, but nothing is further from the truth. 
telling her, you are not favored, you are not blessed. If anything, you are cursed because you have no children. And so Panina would shame Hannah over and over and over again, leaving her deeply hurt, causing many wounds in her soul. Yet God in his mercy, God in his mercy met Hannah in the deepest part of who she was. Now, one of the core values of our faith family is conveyed through the, is conveyed through the image of a tourniquet. See, we believe that a human being's deepest wounds are always worship wounds. Now, sometimes those wounds arise in our lives and they are self-inflicted because we have misplaced our worship, choosing to worship aspects of the created order rather than the creator. And when we do that, the created order will inevitably fell us and leave us wounded. But then there are times, perhaps like Hannah's life, where our wounds are the result of other people's misplaced worship. But whatever the case may be, whether your wounds are self-inflicted or your wounds are those which were inflicted upon you, understand that God in his mercy wants to meet you in the deepest part of who you are, bringing healing, bringing restoration, bringing mercy. And so we consider how it is from those deep places. Since God's mercy is deeply personal, it is from those deep places where we respond. It is from the deepest places of who we are where we respond, giving glory to God, praising him, thanking him, worshiping him in response to the mercy that he has shown us. This is Hannah's prayer. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. Now, the heart represents the entirety of one's self. It encompasses the will, the mind, the emotions, the desires, the affections. Her entire self is responding to the Lord and giving him glory. And then she says, my horn is lifted up by the Lord. The word, the imagery of the horn, that, that's an image of strength, and when the horn is lifted, that conveys triumph, that conveys victory. But notice what she says. She says, my horn is being lifted. It is lifted by the Lord. It, it's passive voice. You see, Hannah's prevailing in that moment didn't come from her own strength. Her prevailing in her situation came by the Lord's strength. It was the Lord who lifted her horn, and now Hannah is opening her mouth, and she is roaring. She is singing a song of victory and triumph, rejoicing in God's salvation. And since God's mercy is deeply personal, understand that it is from the deep places of our lives where we respond and we give our entire selves to the Lord in response to what he has done for us. And our response to the Lord in worship should not be generic. Our response to the Lord should be deeply personal. So let me ask you, what worship wounds has God addressed in your life? What worship wounds has God met in your life to bring healing and restoring? What sins has he forgiven you of? What shame has he covered? What fears have he, has he resolved? What guilt has he removed? What worship wounds has the Lord brought healing to in your life? 
You see, a Christian is someone who says, my heart rejoices in the Lord because of what he has done for me. And our worship should run as deep as God's mercy runs. But in order for that to happen, in order for us to kind of get there, you and I need to be honest. You and I need to be humble. You and I need to be meditative as we reflect upon the ways in which God's deep personal mercy has come into our lives. So we want to think long and hard, honestly and humbly about those realities so that we may respond to God's deep mercy with deep worship, with deep praise. Now Hannah goes on in the prayer and she begins to praise this God who saves like no other. This God who does for her what she could never do for herself. And she says in verse 2, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. And there is no rock like our God. And with these words, Hannah's revealing she's not worshiping. She's not worshiping a manufactured deity like the nations surrounding him, surrounding her were. No, with those words, she's revealing that she's worshiping the holy God of Israel, the one who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. She's worshiping the God who miraculously and powerfully redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage. This is the God that she is worshiping. Now, you think back to the story of the Exodus. The first thing God's people did when the Lord parted the Red Sea and allowed them to cross over, and that moment became the keynote example, their keynote act of Old Testament redemption. Everything in the Old Testament echoes and harkens back to that moment when Israel crossed over from slavery to freedom. They stepped out of darkness and into light. They moved from bondage to redemption. That act of crossing the Red Sea would become the most definitive act of redemption in the Old Testament. And the first thing they did, the first thing they did when they crossed over was they they came together and they sang a song. They sang what's come to be known as the Song of Moses, which was the inspiration behind that song we sung a moment ago. And in that song, they celebrated the holiness of God, the otherness of God. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. They said, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you? Glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders. And so Hannah, when she responds in this moment, she begins to echo that prayer. She begins to echo those realities. And this isn't the first time she would echo Exodus in her prayer life. She did it earlier in chapters, chapter 1, verse 11. She asks God to take a look at your servant's affliction. And then in Exodus chapter 3, we, we're told in verse 7 that the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery, affliction, same word, the misery, affliction of my people in Egypt. And then he goes on. Then in Exodus 4.31, we're told that, And when they, that is the people of Israel, heard that the Lord was concerned about them, that he was paying attention to them, that he had not abandoned them in their afflictions, but instead he had seen them in their affliction, it says they bowed down and they worshiped. You see, once again, we find that 
another clue that Hannah's story is, in fact, Israel's story. That though his mercy is deeply personal, understand that his concerns are always communal. And here's what that means. As you and I experience God's deeply personal mercy, the effect that that should have on our lives is to sweep us up into the collective experience of God's people so that communally and collectively together we begin to worship this holy Lord of glory. We begin to worship the God who created all things and the God who is making himself known through the history of Israel, culminating ultimately with the coming of Christ. See, God's mercy draws us up into the collective story of his people so that we now worship him together. And the story of his mercy, the story of his salvation, the story of God's redemption now becomes the defining story of our lives. It what gives our life a compass. It's what gives our life direction. So that now, having received God's mercy and we are worshiping this holy God of redemption, we, we can say, Thank God the American dream no longer accounts for the story of my life. The American dream is no longer determining my life's vision and value and purpose. We can say, thank God, no other secularism accounts for life, my life story. They are not going to define me, whether it is capitalism or socialism or Marxism, whether it's conservatism or liberalism, no ism is going to determine the vision, the value, and the direction of my life. My life has now been swept up in a much bigger and a much better story. And we are living in light of who God is and what God has done to rescue and redeem helpless and hopeless people. And so we rejoice in this moment that the story of redemption becomes a defining story or narrative of our lives. Now, this means many things for us. The applications for this are are many. I'll just give you a couple of big thoughts at this point in time. One, when God's story of redemption becomes your story, when you find yourself swept up into that reality and no other story begins to define you, all of a sudden now your worldview And your way of life is to be shaped and governed by the gospel of God's kingdom, by the good news of God's redemptive reign and rule, so that now you are living in light of King Jesus and no other earthly king. You are living in light of all that the gospel of God's kingdom is as it is communicated to us through the scriptures in the Bible so that we pay attention to this story and we allow this story to shape us and to govern us. Second, Another thing that this means for us is that it also means that our association with God's global people, our association with, God, with God's global people and with the history of redemption, all of a sudden that now determines who we are to be in the world far more than our own. That our association with God's global people, his global family becomes more defining of who we are than our own family heritage, whether our family heritage is good or bad, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, God's global family now becomes the family we are a part of. 
Now, it doesn't mean that our family heritage and history and where we come from in this world isn't important, but it does remind us that that is not ultimate, that we are not defined by who we are born into in this world. We are now defined by the new family we are born again into as a result of God's mercy. Because in Christ, you and I now constitute a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now you and I are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And so we live into that. We sink into that. But then we keep reading. In verses 3 through 9, the scope of Hannah's prayer begins to scale up. And Hannah lists out a series of reversals that take place. And a series of reversals that clearly move the prayer beyond her her personal experience. And it moves towards the collective experience of God's people as a whole. And we begin to see that the God who saves like no other is the God who reverses the world's expectations. He flips the script on reality as we have assumed it to be. And the reversals Hannah describes, as you just read through verses 3 through 9, those reversals are rooted in creation. If you drop down to verse 9, it says, For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. Going back to creation, to that moment when God turned darkness into light. And God reversed emptiness, bringing in fullness. God brought order into chaos. And he's saying this is the God. The God of creation is the God who's now reversing the world's expectations. As he continues to flip the script on darkness and emptiness and chaos, his reverses are always redemptive. So we want to see where his reverses are targeted. And so at this point in Hannah's prayer, she provides the key to interpreting all of First and Second Samuel, all the themes of this book that we're studying, including Second Samuel. All, all of the themes are found in this prayer. Perhaps most notably at this moment, there's the theme that human power does not account for salvation. God's power does. That human power doesn't account for salvation. Divine power does. You consider how the Lord brings death and gives life. You consider how the Lord humbles and exalts. And this reversal of sorts, this flipping the script on the world's expectations, is going to play out in the unfolding narrative of 1 Samuel. It's going to play out in the stories of Saul and David. Just consider this. When we first meet Saul... He's described as being a head taller than anyone else. But by the time we get to the end of the book, he has fallen at Mount Gilboa. And David will lament at the beginning of 2 Samuel. He said, oh, how the mighty have fallen. There's been a reversal. And then in contrast, you consider who David is when we first meet him. David is described as the youngest or the smallest of Jesse's sons. Yet this young, small David, he would be the one who steps out onto the battlefield to meet Goliath. And he carries with him nothing but feeble stones in a shepherd's pouch. And 
And yet he steps out on the battlefield, and by God's power, he takes the giant down. And then you come to the end of this book, and you find David. At the end of 2 Samuel, David begins to pray a prayer. He begins to sing a song that's a lot like Hannah's song here in chapter 2, where he says, You, God, exalted me above my foes. Translation, you did for me what I could never do for myself. You see, the God who saves like no other is the God who reverses the world's expectations. The world expects the self-reliant to prevail. But God flips the script on that expectation, saying, no, in the end, only the God-reliant will. Only the God-dependent will prevail when all is said and done. It is the very nature of God's kingdom to turn this world upside down. Just consider what Jesus would teach about the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 5 when he's describing who is blessed by God and who he ascribes blessing to is not who the world would expect. It's the exact opposite. Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven shall be theirs. You see, the life we live by faith in Christ, it doesn't appear to be blessed. The life we live by faith in Christ does not seem to be right. It appears to the self-reliance surrounding us that we are living a foolish life that isn't to be blessed. And yet, like Hannah, Or And like Hannah, we are often mocked by rivals, but we trust in the God who reverses the world's expectations. And though we may be overlooked and outmanned in the world that is, we know there's coming a day when all of that changes. Where what Jesus declares to be true is displayed as true for all to see. Because when the gospel triumphs in the end and the kingdom of God is fully consummated, The proud will be leveled, the humble will be lifted, and all will be made new. And so what do we do in the meantime? In the meantime, we put our trust in the God who reverses the world's expectations. We are not swept away by the world's narratives. No, we are swept up into the story of God's kingdom that guarantees these outcomes to be true. And so in the meantime, we bring every form, every shade of our bareness to the Lord, and we cry out for mercy. And at times, the Lord will turn your life into a scale model of what the life in his future kingdom will be like. When he begins to bring light from your darkness, he, begin, he brings fullness out of your emptiness. He brings order to your chaos. He brings blessing out of your barrenness, as the Lord does that in a thousand different ways in all of our lives, as we live by faith in Christ, he's just turning us into scale models, scale models of what life in his future kingdom will be, will be like. 
what life will be like when his kingdom is fully consummated and all is set right. And so we worship the God who saves like no other. We worship the God who reverses the world's expectations. And that brings us to the final aspect of Hannah's prayer. You drop down to verse 10. In verse 10, Hannah strikes a prophetic note in the final statement. She says, those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And here it is. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. And Hannah begins to pray to the God whose king is coming. She's praying to the God whose king is coming. Now, this is a bit surprising in the narrative because at this point in time, Israel doesn't have a king. Now, there have been past indicators that Israel one day would have a king. You find it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17. But then there was an attempt in Judges 9 for kingship to be had. And in Judges chapter 9, you had this attempt at establishing a kingship in Israel, but it, it was a tragic, terrible event. And what we begin to find is that it's not enough for Israel just to have any king. It's not enough for Israel to have a king like everybody else has just for the sake of having a king. No, Israel needed God's king, a specific person. Israel did not need a God like the surrounding nations did who, who had kings that led them to live from the earth up. No, Israel needed God's anointed and appointed king to come and lead them to live heaven down. And Hannah refers to this king here in verse 10. She refers to a king who's coming to do just that, for this king will be God's king. You might underline and circle that word anointed, because that's the Hebrew word for Messiah. And when you get into the New Testament, the Greek translation of that word is Christ. The king who is coming will be the Messiah. The king who is coming will be the Christ. And although Saul and David will be anointed as king in the unfolding narrative of this story, it is clear that Hannah's words won't reach their fulfillment until the son of David is born in Bethlehem. You see, we have the advantage of reading the Bible from our perspective after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And so now we read all of the Bible in light of that unfolding, in light of that moment. And in the circumstances, when you read the, God, when you read the Bible that way, the circumstances for Jesus' coming, they're a lot like the circumstances surrounding Hannah in this moment. I mean, just think about how this book begins. You have a barren woman named Elizabeth. Miracul I'm sorry, a barren woman named Hannah who miraculously gives birth to a son named Samuel who would serve as a permanent Nazarite whose purpose would be to prepare Israel for their first kings, Saul and David. And then once Samuel is born, what happened? Hannah responded to that moment with song. She responded to that moment with this incredible ancient hymn. Then you consider the gospel story. You consider how the gospel story begins with a barren woman named Elizabeth. 
and she would give miraculous birth to a baby named John. John would live and serve as a permanent Nazarite designed to prepare the way for the true king to come, for the true king to be born. And when Jesus was born, understand that he was born not from the womb of a barren woman. He was born from the womb of a virgin, which takes everything up a notch, reminding us once again that God, that salvation comes not by human power and human might. Salvation comes by divine power alone. So we read Hannah's words in verse 10 in reference to Jesus. And just as Hannah would respond to Samuel's birth with this song and with this prayer, Mary would respond to the birth of Jesus with song and prayer. Consider the similarities between Hannah's words and these words. This is what Mary would sing. This is what Mary would pray. My soul praises the greatness of the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the mighty one has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty, that is, the self-reliant. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. You see, God's king is named Jesus the Christ. And Jesus would step into the world ready and willing to save like no other, ready and willing to flip the script on the world's expectations. You see, the world expects for kings to come and conquer everything. But when Jesus first came, you know he did not come, or you know that he came at first to be conquered. This is why Philippians chapter 2 would tell us that though existing in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, on the cross... Jesus became barren. On the cross, Jesus identified with Hannah's barren state. On the cross, Jesus identified with Israel's barren state. On the cross, Jesus identified with humanity's barren state. But remember how Hannah's song ends. It ends with a reference to the horn that the Lord would lift the horn of his anointed just as he would lift Hannah's horn. Just as the Lord would raise, would bring blessing out of Hannah's barrenness, the Lord would bring blessing out of Jesus' barrenness. So we keep reading in Philippians chapter 2, for this reason God highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
See, Jesus humbled himself and became barren on the cross, and God brought blessing from his barrenness. As Jesus would step out of the tomb, and he would soon be exalted and enthroned on high, where he now reigns and rules as the king of all reality. And so we trust in this Jesus. We worship this Jesus. We consider how Hannah's story is not just Israel's story, And Hannah's story is not just humanity's story. Hannah's story is actually Jesus' story. It's Jesus' story because every story of redemption in the Scriptures, they all whisper his name. They all point in Jesus' direction. They all draw us into the deep worship of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King. And so the name we hear whispered in every story of the Scriptures is the name we worship as a church. It is the name that we are bowing to now. And it is the name that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as we know that this King will judge the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to respond to the mercy that you have shown us? God, we thank you for how you have shown mercy to us and you have met us in the deep places of our lives. And we thank you for how your mercy draws us up into the collective experience of your people. And I pray now that you would give us grace to find our life stories determined and defined by your story of redemption. I want to thank you for sending Jesus to live and to die and to rise again, to do everything for us that we could never do for ourselves. I want to thank you that salvation does not come by human might or human power. But salvation comes by your might and your power alone. Thank you. Thank you for demonstrating your power through the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of your son, Jesus. We worship him now in response to all that you have done for us. Amen.